Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org. Seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Caris. Researchers from Johns Hopkins recently reported that in the United States, one in 10 people with dangerous symptoms from cancers, infections, or major vascular events are misdiagnosed or diagnosed too late. Overall, the statistics on the cost of misdiagnosis are sobering, and there are indications actually that the problem may be getting worse, not better. Well, our guest today, Dr. Tom Kelly, started a company in Australia to turn this trend around, and in fact, has a long-term goal of eliminating misdiagnoses altogether. His Oscar education platform employs machine learning to teach clinical reasoning, and it's used by medical students from more than 150 universities across 35 countries and counting. And we're happy to have you on Raise Line today so we can learn more about it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael, and glad to be here. So let's start with learning more about you and what first got you interested in medicine. Yeah, sure. Um, I started my medical training back in 2014. It's an interesting path, I guess. Initially, coming out of high school, I really followed my nose. So I did a lot of mathematics, science. I was interested in just kind of deeply technical things. Um, But I think like a lot of people in medicine, I've sort of thought through a lot of different careers And although I was interested in lots of different things and founding companies, all these kinds of things, I ended up just feeling like I really wanted to do something in service, wanted to offer the community, you know, my indebted servitude to try and improve the lives of others. Um, And also in a personal way, I just thought it was really cool. Like I liked the idea of a career where I would always be learning. There would be new things that I'd have to constantly absorb and Uh, Somewhere deep inside, I knew that there was also a great opportunity to do lots of non-clinical things. So whether it's working in technology or consulting or founding businesses. um, So it just felt like a good utility belt kind of uh, path to take. Uh, And yeah, so I, like many of us do, did my undergraduate degree, applied for medicine, was lucky to get get in and go through the process. Um, And then, yeah, that's how I became a doctor. (laughs) And what's your specialty? Uh, So in Australia, the system is a little different. So you don't go straight into a residency. So I'm still in that, I guess, generalist junior doctor phase. So uh, once you graduate, you go out straight into an internship. And then during those intern years, you rotate around the hospital. So I've done rotations in general surgery, in ICU, in anesthetics, general medicine. You really get a broad overview of of the whole health system and different specialties. Uh, But my specialty is in surgery, specifically in vascular surgery. And in the last sort of six months, I've gone full time for Oscar. So I'm taking a career break to focus on all the exciting things happening at the company. But yeah, if and when I go back to clinical medicine, I'll I'll definitely jump back into the surgical training path. I mentioned at the beginning that vascular events are one of the places where misdiagnoses are are quite common. Is that uh, your experience in Australia as well? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. My, I guess, interest in diagnosis uh, really started in my experiences in rural areas in Australia. So there's a place called Mildura, which is about nine hours away from the main city, Melbourne, in Victoria, the the lowest state in Australia. And in that area, it's just very underserved. Like there's not enough doctors for the community and the the number of uh, patients that you'll see every day. And so what I found was there were instances where there was just misdiagnoses. So, you know, someone would present to the emergency with the symptoms of an occluded artery in their leg. So the leg's cold, it hurts, they can't walk normally. 
but for a variety of reasons, it wasn't a common diagnosis. They were often missed. But the other common thing that would happen would just be a delay in presentation. So because people in those areas maybe aren't used to getting access to doctors and it's very difficult to get appointments with their primary care doctors, they would delay their presentation. So when they came in, rather than just having uh, like a pre-stroke, like the symptoms of, of a stroke, so having numbness in their hands or some funny changes, they would often present with much more advanced states. So they might've had their symptoms for hours rather than calling the ambulance in the first few minutes because they're, you know, tough Australian farmers and they don't want to call anyone. Right, right. Stoic. Yeah, stoic. Um, And yeah, I, I guess that's really like where my interest started. I thought then there just had to be a way to reduce the barriers to get access or to at least to get some initial advice. Um, and then for doctors to be able to just train them to make better diagnoses and avoid some common errors. And, you know, the 50 cognitive biases that, that all humans have, they play out in all of the decisions that doctors make. And when you're hungry and tired and maybe a bit angry, or late and rushing, all of those things contribute to mistakes that that can be really meaningful for patients. So when did the idea of Oscar first come to mind and and what was your vision? Like I said, I was in those emergency departments, um, seeing lots of patients. I was in, so both recently, but also when I first came out of medical school, um, the surgical rotations were the ones that really highlighted the issue um, too many patients to see in a reasonable amount of time and then when you would see the patients it would always be starting from scratch so in Australia we don't we don't really have any mid-level providers so we don't have like physician assistants or nurse practitioners we do but they don't see patients and do an initial consultation it's very much starting from scratch so I was finding I was spending you know maybe 20 minutes 15 20 minutes gathering the initial history and then ordering investigations. And also I realized that because I was rushing, I wasn't doing a particularly good job of gathering that initial history. And it was just one of those things like there's a fixed limitation. If I do a 10 minute history, I can see six patients an hour. If I do 20 minute history, I can see three patients an hour. So you just have to to speed up. Um, So I, I didn't really understand why in the technology powered era we live in, patients couldn't have done just an initial pre-consultation, like some screening set of symptomology questions that I could read that initial summary, get an understanding of that patient, and then go in and ask clarifying questions and very important things, and then do an examination to get to the diagnosis. Um, So that was really the initial idea. I wish that in the emergency departments, I was seeing patients that had had that history taken or even in the initial triage before they even got to the hospital, perhaps they could have done just some online questionnaire, like a symptom checker kind of thing. Um, And then that would have allowed me to give better care to a lot more patients because I could do my 10 minute history, but I would, in that 10 minutes, I would focus on the most important things and I would know all of the mundane details that they would have already pre-entered. So, so that was the idea, but I realized pretty quickly that to do that really effectively, you needed to essentially like map out all of medicine, <laughs> like basically every condition you'd need to map out all of the symptoms, all of the examinations, everything that was important. And as a time for a surgical resident, I knew that that was going to be impossible to do all myself. Um, and yeah, I, I think it was roughly in like 2019, I sort of had a, like a light bulb moment where I thought, so 
a little bit of backstory. So before I was the founder of an education business that helped people get into medicine. So I knew lots and lots of medical students and they were always complaining that they didn't get taught clinical medicine particularly well. So, you know, it was hard to find patients with certain conditions or if a patient did have an interesting case, every medical student in the hospital would want to speak to them and they obviously would get a bit tired of that. <laughs> the teachers wouldn't spend time with them. The doctors would just be walking around and it's, you know, really hard. So it's always serendipitous. Like you just have to find the right person at the right time to get, get something useful whilst you're on placement. And then in 2019, I thought, wow, a really good way to map this whole universe of medicine would be to do it one patient at a time. So I could create a virtual patient that has all of the richness of a real interaction and then medical students could practice with that patient. So they could chat to that virtual patient, ask them all the questions that like, just like a doctor would. And then what we would do is we would get all of that information about how medical students ask their questions and what features the patient would have. And each, each patient we create usually has somewhere between five to maybe 15 conditions that are possible. So possible conditions that we have to kind of map out so that we can create a good virtual patient. And then basically one patient at a time slowly cover more and more. So we start off with one patient. Um, I think it was Bob Rollins, a 58-year-old man with chest pain, then move on to our first shortness of breath history, then move on to the next presentation. And it was a really cool blend of my experience. So I could we could create a platform that I knew students would love and want to use. Um, but at the same time, be building this gigantic map. Um, we call it a knowledge graph, like all of the knowledge all graphed in one place. And that knowledge graph would be really useful for a bunch of things. So not just Oscar, but also other things like our clinical products. So clinical products can be called Heidi. Um, and from history to diagnosis, that's where the name comes from. Um, and that Heidi is all powered from the conversations that medical students are having with Oscar today. And all of the conditions and virtual patients we created really set the foundation to build exactly what I wanted back in Mildura. Talk about this from the medical student perspective. They're on Oscar. They've got a virtual patient and they're typing in questions or how does it work? Yeah, so you can type or use your voice. The way I like to describe it, it's almost like the best chatbot experience you've ever had. So, <laughs> you know, very robust. So you can ask virtually any type of question in any way you like, and we will we'll usually respond in a pretty good way. And as students uh, engage with the virtual patient, they'll ask questions and they'll get ticked off as they identify important features. And the name Oscar actually comes from the OSCE, so it's an objective structured clinical examination, which basically is a, a common type of exam that medical students have to test their clinical skills. So in person, what would usually happen is it would be the student, a patient actor, so someone pretending to be a patient, and then usually there'd be a physical examiner in the room marking off as the student does the right things and asks the right questions. So on Oscar, we do all of those things, but it's just in software. So we're both the patient and the marker. So as they ask questions, we mark them off and we provide a bunch of other things to make it fun, like hints and timers and multipliers and all sorts of things. And yeah, so it's a useful way for students to practice lots of patient histories and patients can speak back with their voice. You can speak to them with their voice. So the only thing you're really missing is, is that kind of je ne sais quoi of all of the in-person characteristics you might get. Right. Um, but in lieu of that, it's still a pretty great way to learn 
your, really hone your history taking skills. And that not only was it a, a good way to map medicine, but that was also something that I found going through medical school. I just felt very ill-prepared going into the hospital settings um, because there were so many patients that you, you might be seeing a condition for the very first time when you're a doctor. So you know the book science of it, you know the, the theory of what people have when they present with certain condition. Let's say pericarditis, so inflammation of the heart and surrounding structures. Um, in that scenario, like you would have read about it, but you would have never seen a patient with pericarditis or not be aware or thinking of that condition as you take the history. You never kind of connect the dots between the, the theory and, and the history taking. And so the cool thing about Oscar is you can take a history and then we can show you what conditions are likely as you ask questions. So you really get that tangible link between the questions you're asking and the likely diagnoses. And in that case, particularly pericarditis and pleurisy can produce a lot of the same symptoms. So mm. how would you be able to narrow that down using your system? Yeah. Yeah. So there's always going to be some identifying features on history that will make things more or less likely. So for instance, with pleurisy, you might expect someone to have a cough or have a productive cough, whereas with pericarditis, it might be um, most classical symptoms are like relief if you lean forward and all these very little history taking questions that are important. But also on Oscar, so it doesn't just end at history taking, you can then do all the things you'd like to do. So do follow-up questions, investigations, and we're building out things like examinations and management plans um, so that you can get that real experience of starting from seeing a patient for the first time and then seeing them through to the end of their journey. But yeah, even on history, I still think as long as you're considering those diagnoses in your reasoning process, then when you get to the point of ordering investigations, you'll make sure that you don't miss the investigations to identify those things. So it's definitely not possible to get to hundred percent accuracy on history alone, but if, my goal and our goal as a company is to make sure that people don't miss things. And so to avoid missing things, you just have to consider them in your list of differentials. You don't necessarily have to have it at the top, but you have to consider things. Things are missed when, when doctors generally have confirmation bias. So they'll focus on the features that they identify early on the history and they don't go broad and think about all of the different conditions that are possible especially early on. In Oscar, we can safely let them make mistakes so they can have confirmation bias episodes where they really focus on the early symptoms and then realize that they forgot to ask about entire systems like you know the kidneys or the lungs or whole categories of possible causes and then realize they got their diagnosis wrong and, and no one's harmed, um, which I think is a, is a good thing. And it's quite hard to replicate that across lots of different patient types. So in, in universities, Typically, you'll have a patient actor and, you know, realistically, the university can only have so many of these acting sessions. It's expensive to run. Um, but on Oscar, a student could speak to 200 patients with all sorts of different conditions, you know, over a couple of weeks or 20 or 50 patients in an afternoon. So, yeah, I'm really excited about what that unlocks for students. And, yeah. So you already have 200 virtual patients? Yeah. Yeah. encounters that are possible give me some sense of the size and scope you've achieved in a couple of years yeah so so we have uh, around 200 virtual patients and we cover a few thousand conditions now and yeah for each of the conditions we try to keep them fairly common things that that medical students would reasonably need to know 
Um, so there's varying estimates, but generally like a trained medical doctor going into the wild should know at least 500 to 600 core conditions and then know the, how to refer or go beyond their scope into different specialties. So yeah, we've covered those, but we also have some uh, sort of funky rare cases that, that are fun um, to do on Oscar. I think that probably the most interesting thing is just like the number of different questions and inquiries and phrases that we've had to deal with. So, you know, it'd be in the order of hundreds of thousands of different types of phrases. Um, and yeah, the, the technology behind the scenes is very interesting. Like we use lots of, I'm not sure if you're aware of GPT-3, but there's a, basically it's a gigantic model that can predict based on a set of context, how to respond it was based on some research from Google and OpenAI and they open source this model. And it's amazing. Like you can say something like, you know, I'm a wizard and I'm walking into a dungeon. Can you help me out? And it will just reply based on all its context and just have a conversation with you and even invent its own storylines and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so what we do is we, we have a whole patient history and we say something like, you are this patient, here's your history. And then we tell it the history. And so if we get very unusual questions or things that, you know, we might not have in our database, we let the system just reply in an organic way. And it's, it's pretty amazing. So you can ask virtually anything and, and you'll get a reply back as that patient. So yeah, it's, it's amazing how far the natural language side has come. So I'm wondering what kind of feedback you're getting. And I'm also thinking because COVID limited clinical rotations, uh, particularly in the early going, it seems like the timing might have been good for a tool like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, COVID was and is still um, a significant impact on so many people. But I mean, for us, it was very helpful to highlight just the need to have some other tools to make sure that like a, almost like a fail safe, like no matter what, students will still be able to interact with patients in some context and practice those skills. Um, and I view it more as sort of like an acceleration of an underlying trend. So, you know, there's no doubt, and, and in my own practice, like I think um, bedside manner and all of the personal skills that are required in person are absolutely required. But I actually think something like Oscar lets students get to a level of competency where they know the questions they're going to ask they can sit in front of a person in real life and actually feel comfortable practicing all those communication skills because they're not, they're not being cerebral thinking about what the best next question is. They're, they've actually done a lot of that on Oscar. And so, yeah, it's definitely helped us in conversations with faculty and even, even students as well, just to identify that need that, you know, in a world where clinical rotations aren't possible or where doctors are extremely busy, overworked, healthcare system is stretched, so why not have some cases on Oscar and let students really supplement their clinical interactions? And like I said, the feedback we got from students when we made Oscar was pretty much like, oh, like I love the fact that I can practice clinical skills with or without friends, with or without the right patients. Like I said, when I was in Mildura in the country, you know, I had friends who were seeing patients with all sorts of rare conditions and I might not be able to see those patients when I'm on placement in a different location. So with Oscar, you have that rare opportunity to really standardize clinical exposure in the sense that if there's a cardiology block, then everyone that's on that rotation can get access to the same patients that have the same stories and the results are standardized across a whole group of people. It's definitely been a helpful force for us to push adoption. So 
What are you learning from the interaction with students? It seems like the kind of system that would be able to capture a lot of information, incorporate that information, build, specialize, you know, add finesse to what you're doing. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think what I find most interesting is seeing how students from different countries and different universities take histories. I think it's a really interesting data set that other people wouldn't necessarily see. I think in general, most students are very good at asking the basic questions that come in a textbook, but they, they falter when they have to really consider the different diagnoses and actually get to the answer about what's happening for that patient and sort of get beyond just asking the questions like a robot and, and get to that higher cognitive level. It reinforces all of the risks and just the danger associated with all junior doctors going into emergency departments and they haven't really formed that cognitive clinical muscle yet. And we see it in the seniority of students. So students who are in their later years will often have a lot of confirmation bias because they'll have sort of lost a lot of their structure and they'll be jumping to try and make the diagnosis, skipping steps and going straight to the answer. But then students who are new, so maybe students in their second year or first year of, of medicine overall, will be very structured, very diligent, but then not be able to connect the dots to the, the conditions and the clinical findings. Um, and the real answer is you need both. So you need to be diligent. You need to have a checklist, be methodical and consistent in your structure. But then once you've gathered the broad information, that's when you zone in on different diagnoses and really effectively rule them out. I guess for me, it's really emphasized the fact that human er error exists and if you look at how the histories play out in Oscar, it's very similar to a chat environment. So as, as healthcare overall goes to more virtual mixed telehealth and in-person models, um, I think something like Oscar is even more important because in a chat-based environment where you can't see the person, you can't get that read on, on how sick or how well they are, you really need to be diligent and effective in how you take the history. You can't skip steps. Not only do you have to ask questions, but you also have to try to assess their health literacy and their insight into their own symptoms and whether or not you can trust them as a historian like is it safe to to finish this consult in a chat environment you know am I confident that this story makes sense in some weird way it's almost like poker you know people make bets and you're trying to put together the story of what cards they might have and it's kind of similar thing if the way that the patient is responding to doesn't quite fit a story that makes sense, then you need to cue red flags to escalate that to an in-person appointment. And so we're doing some work with Western University in California with their telehealth electives to try to help train students to be, especially in primary care settings, more effective and safe and not miss things because they're translating their, sometimes for doctors as well, their lifetime of in-person experience into a chat-based environment, which is completely different. In a chat-based environment, you have to be playing the game, constantly trying to read the patient, make sure that it's safe, thinking of the, the dangerous outcomes rather than being kind of blasé and quick and sending a couple of messages and closing the consult can be quite risky. So where do you see this going in the next five or 10 years? Yeah, so I hope that every medical student around the world at least knows of Oscar and, and hopefully uses it as a big part of their preparation for clinical exams so for their OSCEs um, and then throughout the year to supplement their in-person clinical rotations in the company as a whole we're hard at work on Heidi at the moment so uh, we're hoping to get that pre-consultation technology working really well the initial results uh, are really promising like we're performing 
as good, if not better than all of the benchmarked symptom checkers and things that already exist. Um, and yeah, in five years, I, I would hope that we have that, that operating definitely in primary care. That's the place where we're going to go first um, because we feel like there's that very tangible uh, just efficiency win that seems obvious, especially for chat-based consults. Makes sense for me to jump onto that chat and have a lot of the history already taken. But then slowly, slowly moving into more richer data sets. So moving into phone-based consults and video-based consults, helping provide second opinion and clinical decision-making support for doctors. So something like, um, you know, with the consent of all parties, listening into an in-person consultation, doing transcription, and then also suggesting a couple of missed questions or other conditions to the doctor based on the consultation and the information that we have. And then for patients, uh, I hope that Heidi gives them an opportunity to really personalize and customize their medical journey. So if you're coming through Heidi to consult with your doctor, you're going to be entering a lot of information, symptoms, history, and other things. And we're going to be capturing that in a longitudinal way. It just, to me, it makes logical sense that software can keep in its mind a million more things than a doctor can. And Heidi will be able to consider you know, eventually like five years of your history of seeing doctors and all of the symptoms that you've ever reported when considering what's going on in this current visit, where the doctor and the way we're taught is to really focus on the present. And there's a lot of bias about what's happening in the present. And then at the end of the history taking, consider all of the past medical history and the other possible causes. Um, so in 10 years, I hope that Heidi provides like a superhuman level of diagnostic support so that we make sure that every doctor can practice safely, try to avoid important misses and for patients get a really personalized primary care journey and feel confident and comfortable that no matter the doctor you're seeing, they have the support of Heidi and they, they won't miss important things for your care. That's a great vision. Um, we just have a minute left. We always like to ask our guests at the end to provide some advice to our audience, which is largely medical students and early career professionals, so the same group that you're dealing with all the time, about meeting the challenges of this moment with COVID and beyond just generally advice for their career. Yeah, I'd say it's a it's a really challenging time and I think an interesting moment in history. Um, so it, it can be hard to take silver linings out of a worldwide pandemic, but I think the silver lining for me is just to know that I'm contributing to some positive outcomes for patients during a really difficult time. I think that like this moment in time will be something I think about, you know, for generations to come when I talk to my kids and my kids' kids and talk about the, the time of COVID and, and how that pandemic played out and how the world came together, whether it was for vaccinations or for all of the different things that re required you know, inter-country partnership and the acceleration of, of health and the power of science coming to help millions and billions of people. And in terms of generally for Korea, I, I think it's quite hard, like at least for me, my personal compass, it's a philosophical thing about what as humans we should do for the world. So I think that humankind's ultimate goal is, is to produce new technology, cool things and trade with each other. So, you know, in the earliest little settlements that might've been trading corn for clothes or something like that. Um, so for me, I always have that deep seated instinct to, to build new things. And that's why medicine alone is maybe not, not quite enough. 
because in medicine you're serving people and you're kind of preserving other people's ability to create new things so the farmer comes to you they're feeling sick they can't do their job and you send them back and they're productive again and I know some a lot of people in their lives and in medicine sometimes feel like there's some ceiling or they just wish they could do a bit more than just just the caring side and so I would just always encourage people to uh, relish in that that instinct and produce little things if even if it's just a blog or a website or contributing to different products or ideas in medicine and research that core productive instinct I feel like we all have and it's something that um, if you don't feed that instinct you'll always feel a bit empty in some way I think um, so yeah be a producer I guess is the, the summary <laughs> well and as you were saying at the beginning medicine is a field where there are just so many opportunities you can find a way to plug in and contribute even if you don't have the audacity or the drive to start a business there's lots of other ways you can contribute beyond just uh, the clinical if you're interested in doing it 100 percent. yeah any small project or, or thing you can contribute is yeah like i said that philosophical you're serving that deep human instinct to produce i think well that's a wonderful message to end on i want to thank you very much for being with us and wish you the best of luck dr kelly thank you so much michael and thanks everyone for listening I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Podcast.